Welcome to Revolutionary War Rarities, the podcast of the Sons of the American Revolution. Like, follow, and subscribe to our podcast in your favorite application. You can also follow our podcast at fastfunhistory.com. For education resources provided by the National Society, Sons of the American Revolution, go to education.sar.org. And now, Revolutionary War Rarities. Season 2 Christmas Special. Hi everyone and welcome to Season 2, the Christmas Special for Revolutionary War Rarities, the Sons of the American Revolution podcast. My name is Jim Griffin. And my name is Joe Maples. Jim Maples, we're not quite as festive this year as we were last year. If you recall, last year we were wearing Santa Claus hats. This year we're not, but uh, I know that we are as festive. We're just not physically as festive as we were last year, right? That's right. Well, Jim Maples, today is a special day. Many of many of the days that we have here on Revolutionary War Rarities are special. This is a very special day. We have a special guest with us. His name is Roger Williams. Roger is known to us, has been known to us for a long time. He is a member of the Sons of the American Revolution, but he is also the state historian for the New Jersey Society, Sons of the American Revolution. He played a significant role in the preservation effort um, at Revolutionary War Battlefield in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, he continues to advise the American Battlefield Trust on the Princeton Battlefield's Washington Legacy Interpretive Project to secure funding for Princeton and other Revolutionary War battlefields. I guess it's a good problem to have when we have someone who's accomplished as Roger is. You have to read a lot of this information. I just can't remember all of it, so I'm just going to continue uh, getting this information to you. He is also the co-founder of something that everyone should uh, take a look at called 10crucialdays.org. That is dedicated to the heritage to heritage tourism in central New Jersey and Bucks County, Pennsylvania. He has been a literary agent and publisher for books on the American Revolution and is a senior historical interpreter at Washington Crossing and on the battles of Trenton and Princeton. He is a fellow compatriot, as I mentioned a minute ago, and a uh, and a descendant of an American Revolution veteran. Now, you may ask, why is this our Christmas special? Well, George Washington's crossing of the Delaware in the famous painting by Emanuel Leutze wasn't painted until 1851. However, the event depicted in the painting occurred on Christmas night in 1776. The Battle of Trenton occurred on December the 26th, the next day, as a result of the successful crossing the night before. And the success of that battle was certainly a badly needed Christmas gift to George Washington, as well as to the cause of independence. So, Roger, thank you for being here. Welcome to Revolutionary War Rarities. You've been a longtime friend of ours. We are very much appreciative of that. We look forward to speaking with you today. We're honored to have you with us. Well, thank you, Jim, and, and I'm happy to be here with both of you. I, I've listened to Revolutionary War, War Rarities since its inception, and I appreciate what you guys are doing, presenting these topics to our fellow citizens. So, Roger, I find it interesting to look at the sources of transportation during the Revolutionary War. There were basically only three transportation methods. Horse to include a horse and carriage by foot or by boat. And that's basically all you had to choose from. Out of the three options available, the most common method of transportation was by foot. 
So how were heavy items that were manufactured during that time transported, Roger? Well, it depends on how heavy an item that you have and certainly where you're going. However, it was common to transfer heavy items by water. Those were the interstates of the time. And however, um, that's why I'm here today. What we're, what we're going to be talking about is about the watercraft that changed world history, specifically two types of boats. When all hope of independence seemed lost only five months after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, at about 4.30 p.m. on the evening of December 25th, 1776, a few of the flat-bottom boats and about 18 of the workhorse river boats called Durham Boats, launched an, an amphibious attack that immortalized that 1851 painting by Emanuel Leutze of Washington crossing the Delaware. And just like many aspects of, of history, frequently uh, we have to reconstruct these items to understand them better. And fortunately, we have the exact plans of the Durham Boats. They, they survive. So we're able to uh, create replicas to the, um, to the exact uh, specifications of the Durham boats. They were 45 to 65 feet long, and about eight foot wide at the beam and four and a half feet deep. These boats were, were flat bottomed uh, and designed to transport goods up and down the Delaware River. They displaced very little water uh, they were relative to their weight of what they were carrying due to the shallow water. This was this was instrumental um, because that's where they frequently traveled. The Delaware River wasn't was not that deep. They would they would carry such things um, as pig iron, uh, iron ore, uh, timber. Um, they they could carry as much as. Uh, seven tons or 14,000 pounds. In other words, the bottom of the boat would not go more than 28 inches, no matter how heavy they were loaded, uh, more than 28 inches below the surface of the water when they were fully loaded. Okay, now, Roger, can you provide us with some insight into where these boats were manufactured and by whom they were manufactured? Sure, sure. Um, the boats were originally built by the Durham uh, Furnace on Durham Creek, uh, about 32 miles upriver from today's Washington Crossing, Pennsylvania, uh, just, just below Easton, Pennsylvania. And unlike the famous painting, which, by the way, we, re we refer to as 13 men in a rowboat, these Durham boats uh, were like massive two-and-a-half-ton canoes. Um, and as I said, they, they were hauling pig, iron, and timber, and, and hay, and other goods. The normal method um, downriver was using rudders, or what were called sweepers. Um, and in the middle of the river, they, they might use oars, or sometimes even sails. Roger, from what I understand, these were considered very efficient and well-built boats from that time. The Durham boat, as I understand it, could travel from Durham down to Philadelphia, a distance of roughly 74 miles, fully loaded, in only one day. 
Of course, upstream travel was a bit more difficult because you were traveling against the current, but these boats were the premium Peterbilt trucks of the river during that time period. I understand that at one, one point in time, there were as many as a thousand of these Durham boats in use on the Delaware River alone. Well, it's, it's true. I mean, they, there were a lot of the Durham boats on the Delaware River, uh, but not necessarily all at one time. Uh, often the Durhams were used for just a few trips down the river before they were disassembled and, and repurposed uh, for uses, uh, other uses in Philadelphia and, and lower down the river. Uh, but they were legendary in their time, uh, even, which is specifically why Washington gave orders to commandeer these Durham boats uh, to transport the troops. He did not want the British or the Hessians to have any access to the Durhams. Um, since Washington had control of all of the watercraft, particularly the Durhams, he could use them to launch his uh, desperate attack on uh, the night uh, after Christmas to capture the Hessian garrison in Trenton. But he needed sailors, actually, to get these boats across the river. Uh, after, just after the crossing started, a nor'easter blew in. This, this horrific winter storm blew in. And as he had after the Battle of Brooklyn, he called on John Glover's mariners from Marblehead, Massachusetts, some of whom about 25% of the Marbleheaders uh, sailors were, were either black or, or Indian. These were some of the best sailors available in Washington's army at the time. So, Roger, if I understand it, each boat trip across the river would transport 30 to 40 soldiers. The total number of congressional forces at the Battle of Trent was about 2,400 men. So I understand Washington ordered eight crossing that, that night. Well, it's correct, but we don't know for sure uh, how many of the Durham boats that they had. Washington uh, had called for 18, but we, we don't know for sure that that's how many they had. But if you do the math using 18 boats, that's about six trips back and forth or 216 trips in the dark during a winter storm, most of the soldiers were in summer clothing and they had no sleep for the day before the crossing. All right, so Roger, earlier you mentioned uh, the ferry boats. I'm curious as to what role they played. Well, today, uh, Jim, what we call Washington's Crossing was the Colonial McConkie's Ferry in Pennsylvania. You could not put horses uh, or cannon in the Durham boat. So they needed the ferries. That's why they were at McConkie's Ferry. The ferries were manned mostly by local ferrymen. And that night, militia was involved and dock workers even from Philadelphia who knew the river and were adept at loading freight. Downriver, uh, there were also Pennsylvania and Continental uh, marine detachments. The, these were the predecessors of today's United States Marine Corps. All in all, partly because of the weather, the entire crossing 
took about 11 hours to get 2,400 men um, in the army, uh, 80 feet, 800 feet across the river. Then they had a nine mile march in the dark during this winter storm with 18 cannon to fight the Battle of Trenton. This was Washington's first victory of the American Revolution, truly a time that tried men's souls. It's amazing. So were the were the ferry boats kind of the modern day barges? They were just were they just flat bottom, just they no edge, no side. They were able to roll things up on them. Is that what the uh, exactly? Ferry- they okay. they had these wings that would come down on either side of the bank, and they would just roll the cannon and march the horse onto the these flat bottom ferry boats. And of course, those days, uh, people say, "Well, what, how difficult was it to get the horse on?" Well, horses were you were used to going on these ferry boats. Yeah. So the Durham boats, it wasn't that the Durham boats couldn't support the weight. It was the logistics of getting the uh, equipment on the Durham boats. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. When you see when you see these Durham boats, as I mentioned, they were four feet deep Um, in the painting. You have all of the men sitting down in those little rowboats. Well, you're not sitting down in Durham boats. Everyone's standing up. They're very deep, but you can't get a cannon. You can't lift a cannon up into the boat and you couldn't get the horses into these boats uh, because you couldn't get them out that they needed these ferry boats. Makes sense. That makes sense. So Roger, you know, you know, uh, here at Revolutionary War Rarities, we love trivia. We love the little known, the little understood, the little rarely taught information around everything uh, with the American Revolution. I'm, I'm curious if you have any of that data or trivial trivia kind of information around the crossing. Sure, absolutely. As you know, there are so many myths about the American War for Independence. It would not be wrong to say that most of the 19th century art depicting the scenes of the revolution are inaccurate interpretations of what really happened. Uh, But they are good tools for teaching at Washington Crossing Historic Park. We have a life-size version, a digital version of the Emanuel Leutze painting. And we, we explain to the thousands of schoolchildren that come to Washington Crossing each year that um, while they are going to see this painting for the rest of their life, it's the most iconic painting in American military history, it's all wrong but we teach them what is wrong about it. The weather was wrong. The boat was wrong. The, the ice chunks are wrong. Everything's wrong about it, but it's an inspiration. And this inspirational story of what happened that night tells us about an event that changed humankind. We need to learn the history behind the art. It was not 13 men in a rowboat. What was launched that night was a nation. And this was a nation of men who would create their own course, self-rule, and the principles that all men are created equal. Now, we've not reached the other side there yet, but we're still rowing. (laughs) 
interesting. Also, <clears throat> also uh, while, while I have your ear, um, another myth worth busting. For decades, school children have heard about one of the reasons why Washington crossed the Delaware was that it was on Christmas and it was due to the partying Hessians that would uh, have been too exhausted and I dare say drinking. Well, that's not true at all. First of all, the Hessians were good Lutheran boys and they would not have been drinking and they were under attack for weeks before this battle. So they were ready. They were ready for battle. The, what They were in constant attack, but they were exhausted. And they would not have been partying, but the, it was the weather that threw them off. It was the weather that caught the Hessians off guard. <clears throat> the, office, the officers reasoned that no one in their right mind would attack in weather like that during a nor'easter. Well, Washington wasn't in his right mind. He had to do something, and that's why he attacked. And, and finally, it wasn't Christmas. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, this attack happened on the day after Christmas. So those are some good myths for you. You know, Roger, I think it's important to also to also state that that there were two other groups of troops uh, led by other men that were supposed to cross the river at the same time, and they didn't make it. So it's right. clear. And I'm assuming that because they were in relative proximity to uh, Washington's crossing, that they had the same challenges as Washington had. And uh, I guess Washington maybe understood the nature of the moment better than those the uh, other commanders understood and they just simply didn't cross is that correct yeah well it, there were there were some there were some other factors um ewing's men uh ewing had about 800 new jersey militiamen and some pennsylvanias just south of trenton and they were supposed to cross at the south trenton ferry the ice was just too too bulked up Trenton is a Fall River city. That's where that's the farthest north on a river that an ocean-going vessel can uh, travel, okay. and the ice just uh, coagulated the river. They could not get across. Further downriver, <clears throat> John Cadwallader and the Pennsylvania Associators and those Marines that I mentioned earlier, they were supposed to cross uh, near Bristol, Pennsylvania. Today's Bristol, Pennsylvania, and, and Again, they, they didn't have the right boats. They didn't have any of these Durham boats and, and that were, were almost as big as icebreakers of the, you know, for the river. So they got 200 men across, but he couldn't get the cannon across. So Cadwallader figured, well, we must be calling this off because nobody can get across. But Washington found out that none of the other two crossings happened, but he had no choice. He had to attack before the end of the year when the army's enlistments were going to be out or the whole jig was up, as he wrote to his his relative, Lund Washington. Yeah. Interesting. Roger, we really appreciate you being with us today. And I know that I have learned a lot that I didn't know about the crossing of the Delaware. And I know there's a lot of information that we didn't cover today. So, Roger, would you be willing to come back for another episode? Anytime, anytime. I'll talk about this until I'm blue in the face. <laughs> Roger, um, would you mind providing some more information uh, on where people could find out more information regarding the famous crossing of the Delaware River or the 10 crucial 
uh, days surrounding that effort. Sure. Look, standing on the banks of the Delaware River or at the colonnade at Princeton Battlefield are very serene and contemplative places. And of course, I'm, I'm partial, but you can learn more. Every, I, I think everyone, certainly uh, in the lineage organizations, this should be on everyone's bucket list. Um, at 10crucialdays.org, which is our, our um, uh, foundation, uh, you can learn there's art, there's book lists, there's video. Uh, videos. There's information about the tours that we give, places to stay in the central Jersey area, fine dining, shopping, calendar of activities for the whole family. And you can learn more about the farms and the ferries and the fighting by reading the book by our friend Larry Kidder, who wrote the book called 10 Crucial Days, Washington's Vision for Victory Unfolds. Larry did a terrific job. And then there's also the Pulitzer Prize winning book, by David Hackett Fisher that's just called Washington Crossing. Very nice. Very nice. Now, this has absolutely nothing to do with the Revolutionary War, but it is, it's an interesting fact about Roger Williams to me. Uh, Roger was raised in Woodstock, Vermont, which is widely considered the most beautiful community or town in the entire United States. In fact, Roger was raised near the Village Green in that community, yet another place that's on my bucket list. I have to go there. I've talked to you about that many times, Roger. And I can only imagine how magical magical of a place that is right now at Christmas time. Uh, it, it's just got to be absolutely incredible. I just talked to my family last night. Yeah, it's there's snow up there and Woodstock is a beautiful place. It is our ancestral home. My Patreon ancestor, Jesse Williams, was one of Herrick's Rangers and Seth Warner's regiment, the Green Mountain Boys. Uh, love, love Vermont. It's in my heart. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Roger. It's an honor for us to have you with us today. You know, it is impossible to understand what our forefathers sacrificed without a desire to understand the history of those events in the first place. So don't think of American history as a bunch of dates that have to be memorized, but rather the true story of where we came from, the people that started it, how we got here, why we have become so prosperous to this day, and also why we've suffered from various issues that continue to plague us to this day. History teaches us all of that. History helps us to understand all of that, and that is why history is so important. So as we close out the year, we want to thank each of you for being a part of our podcast. We thank you for your dedication and for watching and listening to Revolutionary War Rarities. We want to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year from all of the sons of the American Revolution. And that, my friends, is a Revolutionary War Rarity. My name is Jim Griffith. And my name is Jim Maples. And we thank you for joining us today. And please be sure to join us for the next episode of Revolutionary War Rarities. This has been a production of the National Society Sons of the American Revolution, www.sar.org. Merry Christmas to everyone.